Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Lori Brandt Hale. Dr. Hale is the professor of religion and the religion department chair at Augsburg University and the vice president of the International Bonhoeffer Society. And she's also the co-author of Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians. Dr. Hale, thank you so much for joining me. It's very nice to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to this. Um, when I first decided to get into Bonhoeffer studies, I think probably the second book I read was Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians. So um, it, you've been on the guest list for a while. <laughs> so, so this is great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what I was hoping we could do and what we normally do is for the listeners to kind of get to know you uh, and for myself to get to know you a little bit. Um, and then we'll jump into some questions about your Bonhoeffer work. So I was wondering if you could tell me how did you become interested in Bonhoeffer? I've been I've been thinking about that. You you gave me a little hint that that would be a question you would ask, um, and I've been thinking about how to tell that story because it's um, it's actually kind of a long story. So I was trying to decide whether to do the long version of the short version. Oh, um, your decision. Go for it. I, I, <laughs> my time is your time. Well, um, so interestingly enough, I came I came to Bonhoeffer on a long path. Um, I actually heard a Bonhoeffer, um, she was a student at the time. She was a student, a, a woman named Lynn Holness who was a student of John de Grouchy. Uh, she was at a conference I was at one, one time and she said in her experience that people were either uh, quick to convert, quote unquote, convert to Bonhoeffer or slow, right? Slow converts or quick converts. And I guess I was on that slow path. And I came to Bonhoeffer through an interest in religious community, the idea of religious community that I've been working on um, as an undergraduate uh, in Friedrich Schleiermacher and Immanuel Kant. So that seems like a, maybe a strange path, but um, I had become interested in the Enlightenment way back in high school. I'd given a presentation that kind of blew my mind, actually, just the whole topic, and mm -hmm. got into college and had the opportunity, opportunity to take a seminar on the fate of religion and poetry after the Enlightenment critique. Schleiermacher and Wordsworth. I mean, what 19-year-old doesn't want to take a <laughs> like that, right? Um, and so, uh, but I was, I was thinking about my own experiences of community, my own experiences of religious communities, and, and questions about what that, what that meant, what that looked like, and so started looking at those questions through the lenses of those two thinkers. Um, meantime, uh, now this is going to, I'm going to get into the name dropping portion of my story. Um, <laughs> meantime, Charles Marsh, uh, who has written on Bonhoeffer's philosophical work and uh, done a recent biography, came as a visiting professor my senior year um, at the university where I was attending and um, did a seminar on Bonhoeffer. So I sat in on the seminar. I, I only, I could only audit it because I had a lot of courses left to finish my um, double major. I had a double major in history and religion. So I, you know, when you audit a class and you have a lot of other classes, it means you don't do a lot of the reading, mm -hmm. at least in my case, um, at that point in time. And so I'd go listen and I was very interested, but I wasn't hooked by any stretch of mm -hmm. the imagination. So I went off to do my master's degree and had the opportunity to, I was at the University of Chicago um, Divinity School for my master's degree and had the opportunity to take another seminar on Bonhoeffer, this time with uh, Robin Lovin teaching 
and uh, being assisted by another graduate student, Mark Brocker, who um, both of them were sort of found, founding members of the editorial board for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works. Hmm. So again, I had this amazing experience. I read quite a bit of the ethics. I think I did a paper on Bonhoeffer's thinking about the ultimate and the penultimate and thought, wow, this is really interesting, but I'm really interested in this other set of questions. So I headed, I left Chicago uh, to head off where I had initially intended to, to go straight out of undergrad. I went to UVA to work on my um, PhD and I was all set to work on community and people kept saying, well, if you're going to work on community, you have to, you have to read Bonhoeffer. And I was like, well, I have. I've read Bonhoeffer. Like, no, 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 you have to read, you know, you have to read Bonhoeffer's dissertation. You need to read Sanctorum Communio. And have you ever had that experience where someone, like, really enthusiastically uh, endorses a movie to the point that you don't want to go see it? Um, <laughs> I'm that person to everyone else. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, you have to see this. You have to see this. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah you're just not selling it, right? So... Um, so finally, I kind of out of almost, um, I don't know, some kind of spite or indignation or something, I'm like, fine, I'll read the dissertation. Well, it was life changing for me. Mm-hmm. So I read the dissertation. I was like, oh, now I get it. Um, and that was my that was my my turning point where I, I started reading everything. And so I. I was really interested then in what Bonhoeffer had to say. And at the same time, it was one of those, again, some of those stories where all these different threads were coming coming together. So I happened to be, I had picked up um, uh, Kathleen Norris's book called Dakota, a spiritual geography. And she was writing about moving from New York to South Dakota of all places. And she was a Protestant, but she was spending time at a Benedictine monastery. And then I was looking at, um, some of the stories about Bonhoeffer spending time at the Benedictine Monastery in et al. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1940 when he was working on his ethics. And I came across um, a passage, and, and again, you know, Benedictines, I mean, so we're talking about community. Right now we're really into the, into the weeds, talking about community and thinking about what it means to live in community. And um, thinking, of, of course, about Bonhoeffer's work uh, in his dissertation on thinking about community and really um, broad, almost abstract ways, but then the way he put those kinds of ideas into practice when he when he uh, was running the seminary at Finkenwalde, and um, and I was struck uh, that that he was struck by the fact that when he went to the monastery after the seminary, well, it was obviously after the seminary was closed, it was a little bit later than that. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the Benedictines had read his um, his work, discipleship. And he um, he noted, and I found this in a in an older um, kind of biography of Bonhoeffer. I, I have to look at the reference again. Um, but he noted, I think it was in a letter to someone, um, that he felt that he had failed to live up to the Benedictine mandate to greet each stranger as Christ. Hmm. And so I thought, how could this person, who in the end gives up his life for others, right? If you want to sort of cast it in those in those terms, feel like he has failed to live up to this mandate. And so that was it. I, I ended up writing my dissertation on Bonhoeffer's understanding of intersubjectivity. So the title of my dissertation was Love Your Enemies, question mark, Love Your Enemies, question mark, um, mm-hmm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Question of the Other, and sort of trying to sort out um, 
how he understood relationships with other people and if they were intimate others or stranger others or enemy others and, and what that looked like. Wow. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. I might, uh, yeah, I might bug you for a copy of that because yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians. As I mentioned, it, it's really helpful for me getting into Bonhoeffer studies. Um, you wrote the second half. The first half is like a 70-page biography written by Stephen Haynes. And then the second half uh, was your work. And it was uh, kind of laying out the five main themes in Bonhoeffer's, across all of Bonhoeffer's works. Um, I found it really helpful um, to know these five and um, know where they're located so that if I think of questions, I can think, okay, well, he wrote about that in ethics. So I'll go to ethics and uh, just a great way to frame his work. So I was wondering if we could just uh, walk through the five themes and then locate them, I guess. Um, sure. Great. Uh, so let's, so the first one, um, and this seems like just hearing your stories makes it sound like uh, the thing that you are very, very excited about Christ existing as community, because that's, I mean, it seems like it shows up in definitely Sanctorum Communio. Uh, does it show up anywhere else, or is Sanctorum Communio the, the main place? Well, I think that would be the main place. Again, I mean, just to this, this general conversation we're having, when mm. when I started writing that section, actually, I, I think I think in the beginning of, that, of the second chapter, I talk about having a student in class, um, you know, asking students to write a paper and on a theme and saying, you know, how can I pick one, right? Because of all of the sort of integration of these themes, if you start pulling the thread and it's all connected. So um, certainly the place where he develops that idea that we, that we find the ongoing incarnation, that we encounter Christ. I mean, it's sort of the root of his Christ-centeredness, right? I think that's another way to talk about Bonhoeffer is that um, he's, his theology is inherently Christological, mm -hmm. that God reveals God's self to the world through the incarnation in, in the person of Christ. And, um, but, you know, so we, so we get that articulation initially in, in Sanctum Communio. You wouldn't necessarily get that formulation in other places in his work, but it stays, again, it stays present as a, as a thematic um, foundation for other things. So we really can't even talk about religionless Christianity unless we're talking about his Christology. So, um, hmm. so again, it's, I, I see these kind of as building blocks. And one of the reasons I tried to pull these out, again, they don't, there are themes that are missing. I have colleagues who might say, well, you didn't talk about um, Revelation, or you didn't talk about, you know, there are things that we can, we can name that are not in that list of five. But I think if you can get a pretty good picture if you look at them together. So I would start... Primarily, if you want to think about his notion of Christ existing as community, stay in his dissertation. That would be the primary place to Great. go. Yeah, and and can you, for someone who has like is being introduced to Bonhoeffer for the first time, what does mm -hmm. he mean by Christ existing as community? Um, what really um, attracted me about his work in Saint John Communio, which which was this notion of, um, you know, what Clifford Green calls the sociality of theology. For him, theology is inherently social, right? Mm -hmm. So relationships are mediated by Christ. We encounter Christ in the other. We present Christ to the other. And this notion that when we encounter another, an other, right, any other, that that other places an ethical demand on us and we're called to respond. And so those that piece 
then is part of what morphs into, and I think, you know, this idea that if we're asking ourselves, which he eventually is going to ask the question later, you know, who is Christ for us today? That's a question that, you know, he articulates um, in a particular way in the, in the ethics. But if you go back to St. John Community, he says, we encountered we encountered the ongoing incarnation of Christ in community mm-hmm. in relationship with others. And I think all of those ideas are central in that first, in that first work. That's great. Well, let's jump into the second one. Um, I almost named this podcast, the costly grace podcast, because it is, that's the, the Bonhoefferism that everyone knows. Um, but I decided to keep it a little bit more simple. Um, what, so for someone who hasn't read, um, read Bonhoeffer's works, what is Costly Grace and where do we find it? Yeah, so Costly Grace is um, this key theological idea that he develops in his book Discipleship, which uh, historically was called, the title of that book was The Cost of Discipleship. And early, I think early translators wanted to get the notion of Costly Grace, which is so central to that book, sort of in the in the title, right? Mm-hmm. Um the original German uh, title for that book is Nachfolge, which means following after. So what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to follow after. So that's why the change now, if you look at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works in English, um, lists that book now as discipleship and not the cost of discipleship. But again, one of the key ideas that comes out of that text, one of the theological ideas is this notion of costly grace. And grace is a concept, um, it's important in Christian theology in, um, in, in Catholic theology and Protestant theology, but it's been interpreted differently over time. And so part of what you have to think about is how Bonhoeffer is inheriting the tradition around grace and what that is um, and what he's, what he's doing with it. So um, there's this notion that grace is a gift from God. It's a gift that comes um, through the vicarious act of Jesus' death on behalf of humanity, right? So that when, um, again, this is some pretty basic Christian doctrine, when Christ, who is sinless, dies, he he stands at the day of judgment in our place, in our stead, so that we are judged sinless before God, right? So this is where this idea that we have this gift of grace um, it comes from God, and it gets tied up with theological thinking about understandings of um, justification, and so um, justification, when I, when I teach this in class, I'm going to ask my students, what, you know, what does justification mean? And, and everyone's a little bit stumped for a little while. And then they ask, well, I say, well, you know, what does it mean? Um, just not in a theological or religious context. And so usually they type, well, we're trying to justify our actions. Like we're trying to explain why something is okay. Um, and I'm like, you're getting on the right track. So, um, so, you know, really simply put, justification is being lined up in the eyes of, with God or being lined up in the eyes of God. And I, um, I like to use the example of when you're typing a paper, if you're, you know, justifying your margins. People don't use that language as much as when we had typewriters. But, you know, if you have a left justified margin, the left line is lined up and mm-hmm. right justified margins, the right is lined up. Um, any, anyway, so... This is what justification is. And so in the Catholic tradition coming out of the Augustinian tradition, um, you get this notion that uh, justification, the doctrine of justification is, there's a transformative doctrine of justification, right? 
that when you receive this gift of grace from God, it transforms you, it transforms your thinking, willing, and believing so that you now can be lined up. You can act and think and believe in such a way as to be lined up in the eyes of God. That's what makes you righteous. That's what, mm. um, that's what happens. Um, you know, and, and if forgiveness is something that's part of that story, it's a pretty minor part of that story. Martin Luther comes along, of course, you know, 1,200 years or later. He's a Catholic. He's a monk. He's an Augustinian monk. Um, and he is tortured, tormented by this idea that, um, that this passage, right, the righteous shall live by faith. He thinks you have to be righteous before you can live by faith. He goes to confession every day. Um, and, and he comes to the conclusion that there's nothing you could ever do or be that would be enough to to make you righteous, justified in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. He talks about the declarative, out of his work comes the declarative doctrine of justification, right? That you declare your faith, that gift of grace is absolute um, unmerited mercy mm-hmm. um, and forgiveness. And so this is where we get the famous, we are justified by grace through faith alone. Um, and so this is, the, this is the tradition that Bonhoeffer inherits. He starts with the sort of Lutheran starting point with his understanding of grace. But if you're, if you're going to look at these positions and criticize them, right, if you look at the Catholic doctrine, you say, well, you have to earn your own salvation. This is that classic works righteousness critique mm-hmm. of that doctrine. But from the other point of view, if you're going to look at the Protestant view, then it's like people are off the hook. They're lazy, lazy Christians. And, and um, Bonhoeffer sees some merit in that critique. And he says, you know, the, this gift of grace cost God everything, cost God his son, um, that if we want to be forgiven, we have to be repentant. You know, he, so in, in other words, we have to take that transformative piece a little bit more seriously. And so he articulates um, what, I would artic- what I would say is a middle ground, right? So um, this notion that, yes, we start with our declaration of faith, that we receive this gift of grace from God that's, absolute unmerited mercy and forgiveness but that does in fact transform how we live in the world so that's what he would call costly grace um he's going to lean pretty heavily into that later in his life when he makes the decision to be part of the conspiracy and recognizes that in doing so he becomes a sinner and is dependent on the on the grace and mercy of god that's great um Yeah, I think that's that's a great summation of the th- of what I read in your book and and what I've read in discipleship. Uh, that concept of him him putting it against cheap grace, obviously the context is, is huge. His background's huge in that, but this um, people claiming Christ but also just living however they want. He wants to fight against that, but um, but also still say that we're justified by grace. Um, yeah, uh, the, the way that he puts it in that book is, is just so simple, so straightforward, and so um, provocative, I guess. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine being someone in his context reading that book when it comes out and thinking, <laughs> <laughs> taking it as a light read or something like that. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the third one. Uh, all right. We're going to give this, this a shot. Okay. Silver tree tongue. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's your I call. I mean... Uh, silver tree tongue, silver tree tongue. Uh, <laughs> probably some other. We could do a tap dance to that. Probably um, there's a lot of syllables in there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Well, the the, the term 
that has been translated to is vicarious representative action. Um, where do we see this in Bonhoeffer's work and how does he use that term? So this is a really interesting term. So like you said, it's been trans, it's a hard word to translate from the German and in the original, some, if you, if you go back and read some of the first translations of various things, um, it was translated in different ways, including um, it was translated as the word deputyship, hmm. which um, doesn't really mean anything to our English ears, right? It, that doesn't carry any significant um, meaning or weight. Um, and so there's a more, this more literal translation uh, tries to get at the, the sense of, of what it, what it means. And so we see it actually, um, I, you know, in, in the way that I laid out the book, I put it, I, I, I paired it with ethics as formation mm-hmm. and, um, and indicated the, the way that it's used in his ethics. But it actually, he actually introduces the idea in Sanctorum Communium. Hmm. And so, um, and so you see it showing up there um, and really where he, he unpacks it there as very much a theological concept. Um, and so, and, and I, when I say that theological concept, I think I've just been working, I have a chapter, I have a book, I have a, I'm co-editing a book um, that'll be out next in the next year I'm on the political theology of Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. And in the chapter that I wrote, and maybe we can talk about that later, but sure. I mean, I, I try to do some uh, work sort of defining the way Bonhoeffer uses terms differently. So religion, theology, theological mm-hmm. anthropology, and ethics, right? Those are all related terms, obviously, but not... Um, uh, not in, you can't you can't just substitute one for the other, um, and so when I say that he, when I so when I say that he uses Stover Trattering in a theological way in in Sanctum Communio, I, I mean something very specific by that, right? So he's talking specifically about how it um, refers to the vicarious act that uh, Jesus, the vicarious act of Jesus on behalf of humanity, right? That that sets us up for how we are to sort of then um, follow after him. So it gets tied in with his concept of discipleship. It gets tied in with um, his understanding, his theological understanding of the place of, of Christ. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue. It's one of those concepts that then evolves over his work and so when we see it showing up in the ethics then we can start to um, um, understand a little bit better about how it undergirds his thinking about what it means to um, be ethical and 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 interact with people who are living in the world and have concrete needs Hmm. Um, and so uh, you know when we start talking about our call as disciples of Christ to, to act vicariously on behalf of those who've lost their power or lost their voice in the way that we might think about his, his involvement in the, in the conspiracy on ethical terms, right? Then we can, when, then we can look at how he talks about silver touching in the ethics. Yeah. Um, that was really helpful for me. Um, you know, you, you kind of, especially when you read discipleship, if you read discipleship first and you see his, how serious he says to take the sermon on the Mount, um, and then, I mean, I think every single biographer of Bonhoeffer gets to the point where we're saying, well, he's very nonviolence and takes the Sermon on the Mount very seriously, but he, he involves himself in this. How? And I think that that term, vicarious representative action, 
really provides a great baseline for how he acted um, and how he chose to act and what he thought Jesus did for him and for the world. And um, Yeah, it's nice that he put it together in one, <laughs> one little three-word phrase. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So you can see again. You it's a it's a concept that is present even when he's not talking. Not when he's even when he's not using it explicitly. But you can find explicit references to it in multiple places in his in his corpus. Mm-hmm. But to that point, you were just making. I mean, about the the well, the involvement in the conspiracy and the and his um, work in discipleship. So, um, you know. So going back to the things that I worked on in my dissertation he very much is committed to rethinking the Sermon on the Mount and, um, and you know, this encounter, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of jumping here, right? But with this encounter he had with Jean Lasserre in New York in 1930, 1931, the French student mm-hmm. who was a pacifist, um, he suggested to him that he should read the Sermon on the Mount differently than he had read it before. Right, that he should read it not as some kind of hoped-for ideal of the end of time or in the kingdom of God or some reminder of how fall how far we fall short, you know how how inherently sinful we are that we can never possibly live this way. You know, Lucerre's like, yeah, I think we're supposed. To, this is a, like how we're supposed to live, and um, and he and so and so when you um, if you when you think about that and think about what he wrote in discipleship, uh, and think about and even if you go back. Um, before he before he took the seminary, right before he took the leadership of the seminary, when he was in London for those two years um, in London, if you look at the sermons from that period, he is writing very explicitly in those sermons about loving one's enemies, mm-hmm. right? And he's not talking about that in the abstract. He's talking about that in very real. I mean, he's trying to figure out what do we do in the context of Nazi Germany? What do we do in response to Adolf Hitler? And so even though he doesn't mention Hitler by name, he's still writing these sermons where he's trying to figure out how to overcome evil through love. Um, and he continues to write about that in discipleship. And, um, uh, you know, I think that's it's, it's part of how he's trying to understand. I mean, maybe we could go back and think about how that connects to his understanding, again, of Stelver touching of Christ existing as community, and even as his understanding of grace, all those things would play into that. Mm-hmm. But when you get to 1938, so the, so the seminary has been closed. Um, Crystal knocked happens right. November 9th, 1938, which is horrific. This horrific night where Jewish homes and businesses and synagogues are um, vandalized and burned and people are injured and killed. Um, and he, I mean, he's upset by the events of the night, but he's also upset because the churches, both the German church, the, the, the Deutsche Kirche, and the Confessing Church are silent. Hmm. And from that point on, um, it's he, he switches that language. It's really hard to find in his work after that point any explicit reference of loving ones to loving one's enemies. He starts talking after that about responsible action. Hmm. Well, I didn't, I never put it together with, that's the interesting thing going through all the works right now is you kind of get these, uh, a little bit more, these historical moments uh, rather than just like, here are my thoughts on these, in these books. And you think, oh, these are timeless Christian truths, but then kind of seeing some things that actually happen in his real world that kind of lead him to start thinking differently. Um, it's really interesting. Um, 
you mentioned earlier ethics as formation and how you kind of combined it um, in, in one chapter together. Um, I think this term is probably the least uh, popular, not necessarily that it's like uh, least liked, but least popular. It's, it's something that I had not read ethics before I read your book. And I was like, oh, I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> and the other ones I kind of knew. <laughs> um, right. So what, what does he mean by ethics as formation? Yeah, so um, uh, Bonhoeffer really turns systematic thinking about ethics on its head. Right. Um, if you look at other um, people who are thinking or writing about ethics, um, again, I'm, I'm making really big generalizations, but it, you know, um, you're going to find uh, this this hope or this intent to articulate principles, ethical principles, or systems guidelines that can be universalizable. Right. So. What are those sort of rules that that guide us that um, that help us make these ethical decisions? And are they good? Most people are a lot of a lot of thinkers are going to say, and we want these things to be good in all places at all times. And Bonhoeffer says that's that's just not that's not practical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know he's gonna he's gonna talk. Um, uh, in in 1940, um, you know, in 1942, when he writes after 10 years the essay of support to his co-conspirators, he's going to talk about living in a time as that that's a great masquerade of evil, right? Where evil has presented itself as everything that's nece- nece- uh, necessary and and light and right, all these kind of things. And so, this is the context in which he's starting to write his ethics this very um, uh, morally complicated uh, situation, I guess mm-hmm. I'll put it that way, right? And that's an understatement, but that's the situation he's living in. And so there, there isn't a clear um, sense that you can say, here's, here's a rule that's gonna always apply about what is the right thing to do or what is the wrong thing to do. On the, on the flip side though, he doesn't wanna sort of swing the pendulum all the way to situation ethics where you always determine the right thing to do in the moment, right? He wants to have some grounding. And for him, again, we go back to that Christological center of his work. And so he says, um, for him, ethics is, is being conformed to Christ. And, and that takes on some specific shapes, I guess, right? So to be conformed to Christ, to be conform to the one who's become human, right? So what, you know, we know some things about what it looked like in, 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 as Jesus took on humanity, to be conformed to Christ is to be conformed to the one who was crucified, who was judged before God. Um, hmm. To be conformed um, to Christ is to be conformed to the one who rose, who became a new human in God. And so he's looking at that whole, I mean, so basically Christ becomes this, um, I mean, this is the sort of Christological reconfiguration of what he mean, what he thinks it means to be human, right? And to be conformed to Christ is not to become more divine, but to actually be, become more human. Mm-hmm. But in that, it allows him then to say we are then grounded um, in reality, and we can respond to real people in real concrete need. So there's this great there's this great passage in ethics. It's I mean it's. Um, it's so fantastic. It's it's the one you may know it. I mean, it's, I don't know how I don't know that it's as famous as other things. But he said, I'm just going to read this to you. Um, I pulled it out. Awesome. Um, 
He says, um, um, uh, Christ, he says, um, he, he says, Christ does not proclaim a system of that which would be good today, here, and at all times. Christ does not teach an abstract ethic that must be carried out, come what it may. Christ was not essentially a teacher, a lawgiver, but a human being, a real human being like us. Accordingly, Christ does not want us to be, first of all, pupils, representatives, and advocates of a particular doctrine, but human beings, real human beings before God. Christ did not, like an ethicist, love a theory about the good. He loved real people. Christ was not interested, like a philosopher, in what is generally valid, but he was interested in that which serves real, concrete human beings. Christ was not concerned, concerned with whether the maxim of an action be, could become a principle of universal law, but whether my action now helps my neighbor to be a human being before God. So God did not become an idea, a principle, a program, or a universally valid belief or a law. God became human. So, <laughs> so good. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, and so, I mean, um, that's where you get sort of the crux of what he means by ethics as formation. Um, but it's complicated because it doesn't give you, I mean, I think one of the perennial questions with thinking about Bonhoeffer, whether you're talking about ethics or whether you're talking about um, resistance, whether you're talking about, um, uh, you know, in the larger, in the larger um, uh, sort of overview of his ethics where he says the ethical question is not what does it mean to do good, the ethical, the ethical question is what is the will of God, or, you know, again, which... Um, if you've watched the documentary um, by Journey Films by Martin Doblemeyer, you've seen John DeGrushy talk about that. And he says in that film, he says, you know, what is the will of God means? What is it in this time and in this place that I'm called to do? Mm -hmm. Right. You take all of that together. It still begs the question of discernment. Yeah. Right. It's still, how do we know what the right thing to do is? How do we know um, if we've, got it right. I and mean, that's the tricky part. We still don't, we still don't know, but it's not formulaic. So this is something I think I, I think I wrote this in the, in the book that you, the armchair book, right. Where it's not the, um, the teenage bracelets, right. That say, what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to discourage a teenager from sort of stepping back and trying to ask themselves a good question to like, make a good choice in the moment. Sure. Um, but there's so many things that we face now we, we don't know what jesus would do because jesus wasn't facing some of the contemporary challenges we have but we can go back to these other um if, if we think about confirmation to christ rather than what would jesus do but how are we conform to christ then it gives us this lens on how we're supposed to respond to people right mm -hmm. and that gets right back that goes right back to the dissertation to this notion that um when i encounter another i am i am uh, presented with a demand to respond, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's part of that. So that would get tied up then again with what does it mean to talk it's about Christ? Connected, community, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's really helpful. I mean, I that's the hard part of reading it, and I think you've given me some some clarity there. Um, reading through these uh, all of all of his writings, and he tends to say those things where he says we can't live off of universal principles for all time. But then he says things like vicarious representative action. This is what Jesus did, so this is what we should do. Or, you know, or uh, we should take this sermon on the mount. Yeah, <laughs> which seems like, oh, well, that seems like you're doing that with that. But uh, 
I think the thing like that I really caught from ethics and from ethics formation specifically in your uh, that chapter is that the the problem with what would Jesus do is it makes I'm reading um, I'm reading the uh, you endorse this book uh, Human Subjectivity in Christ um, oh. by Jake Phillips yeah he's yeah hoping that he's the next guest he he said yes we just still got to line it up. Um, but I'm reading that right now and he's talking about kind of unreflective obedience and beholding the self as the object instead of beholding Christ as the object. And what would Jesus do? While it sounds like it's still like it's beholding Jesus as the object, it's still us discerning what would Jesus do. And I think constantly the thing that I'm finding more and more of that he wants to get to is because it's not about principles, it's more about relating directly to God as human being god incarnate through christ and and all of that together is a direct one-to-one you and me talking together not well what did he do last week (laughs) okay well i'll just continue that and not relate directly but there seems to be this ongoing hearing and doing um from ethics that that kind of make it all work together somehow i guess yeah (laughs) i like that Great. Um, well, let's do the last one. Um, the last one is religionless Christianity. Where can we find this? And what does he mean by this strange, provocative phrase? So um, so we find religionless Christianity in letters and papers from prison, uh, specifically in, the, in section three of letters and papers from prison. So, um, this is, so, you know, if you read letters and papers, the first, the first couple sections are... Um, there's a lot of things in there, but a lot of it, the beginning, especially it's like letters to his folks and to his brothers. And can you bring me this pair of pants? And, you know, and Mm -hmm. so he was in prison. He, um, the charges were very tenuous. Um, everyone thought he would get out. So they were at that point, they were writing letters that were going through official channels. They were subject to censorship. They could only write every 10 days, Hmm. um, et cetera. Right. Um, of course they, they knew at some point, especially after he'd been in for some length of time, that they were going to hold him. They had reason. They'd been watching him. Um, they were going to hold him, and he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to get out again. There's lots of different stories. I mean, he had an escape plan that he um, canceled because his brother Klaus was arrested, and he didn't want to, you know, raise attention um, unnecessarily. To, you know, in, in mm-hmm. that regard. Um, but anyway, the the point of this is that this third section is where you start getting the really, really interesting theological stuff. Um, and he is writing to and from his best friend and confidant, Everhard Betka. And those letters are being smuggled in and out of prison by a guard. Um, so they're not going through the official channel. Um, and it's deceptive. And when you read, when you read those letters, um, they're very conversational. So on one hand, you think, oh, this is like way easier to read than, for example, you know, than Sanctorum Communio or Act and Being or the things that are um, mm-hmm. sort of philosophical treatises. Um, but it's really, it's really deep material. And then it's spread out. So you have to piece together the argument from all these different letters, which makes it tricky. So basically, he's, he's, um, he's making a couple of different um, moves here, right? So he's he's trying to sort out in a time when he's very disappointed by the church and he's very um, troubled by, you know, uh, just any, you know, any number of things. 
I'm thinking again, I'm thinking about people who claim to be Christian and he talks about them in letters and papers in the, in the essay that he writes before he goes to prison about people who have given up in pious resignation of working for a better earthly future. Right. He's just, mm-hmm. um, he's trying to sort out what does it really mean to be a Christian? Right. Religion seems to be that he talks about it as a garment, uh, that sort of is a cover over Christianity. And if that garment changes over time, what would it look like if we just stripped it all the way down? What would a religionless Christianity look like? Um, So that's one sort of thread. Another thread is he talks about um, the world come of age. And so he's writing in a time that is, um, you got to think about his context again. So context always, always, you know, influences what we're, what we're thinking and how mm-hmm. things are evolving. So he's, you know, post-industrial revolution. Um, he is, uh, there's a growth in scientific advancement. Um, there are new fields of study like psychoanalysis. So Jung and Freud are writing. I mean, so he's living at a time where people are not automatically or a priori religious. Right. If you have a question in the past, if you went outside at night and looked at the stars and were awestruck, you might go to the church to ask about the heavens. Right. Mm. And now you have a question about the stars. Who are you going to who are you going to ask now? Right. You're going to you're going to ask a physicist or an Mm -hmm. astronomer something like that. And so um, he says, however, he says but this is really good news because for a really long time, people were operating with a concept of God that functioned as a deus ex machina, right? God is machine. And so this is a theater reference, right? An old theater reference where you would have a, in Greek theater, you'd have a godlike figure, some irresolvable problem in the story, a godlike figure literally on a pulley system, right? The machine comes swoops onto the stage, solves the problem and heads back out, um, right? And this is how people thought about God. God was kind of, the, he, this is language he uses in letters. Um, he was a stopgap. God was the stopgap for our gaps in our knowledge, right? For our misunderstandings. And so, um, and so if God is the sort of answer to your unanswered questions, as you, as you, and by you, I mean, as the society, right, continues to gain more and more understanding of how things work, etc., then that concept of God gets pushed further and further out on the boundaries. God is sort of out on the, the boundaries of things. Um, but, that's, but he said, how, but that's a false concept of God in the first place. So the fact that the world has come of age, that we have no all this stuff, that we don't think about God as a stopgap for our um, lack of understanding, it's actually great because we can just we can just get rid of that false concept of God, that Deus ex machina, and then we can look. He says we look to the Bible to find where does God show up in the world. God, show, God shows up in human form, weak and powerless, in the midst of life, in the midst of sufferings and joys and all those kinds of things. And so this is the, this is the, the good news, right? Mm-hmm. That we, that we can um, look this way at, at then what he starts to describe as a, this worldly Christianity. And so, um, so this is a, so he, so he's developing what he would call a non-religious interpretation. It doesn't mean that he's abandoned spiritual practices. He still reads the Bible and mm-hmm. sings hymns and prays, and those things are very important. Um, um, but, it, but it ties back into, again, there's another thread, right? I mean, this thread that if you go back and look from the beginning of his work, um, 
there's a little bit of a disdain about religion in general, right? He thinks about religion, this idea of religion, as the human search for God. Mm-hmm. Sort of an arrogant search for humans searching for God. And, and by that measure, all religions get it wrong, including Christianity. Mm-hmm. And he said he wants to talk again, again, his Christ-centered theology um, is God coming to us, right? God coming to humans. And so so you can see how this then sort of plays out in religion as Christianity. Which is, let's just get rid of that piece altogether, that, that, um, that human element where humans are seeking God. We want to focus on this crystal, Christological, Christ-centered, um, this worldly, religionless Christianity where God comes to us. Awesome. Awesome. That's a great summary of that as well. Um, So I have one final question for you. We do every episode, we end with a little game of Desert Island to get some book recommendations. Um, So the idea is that you are trapped on a desert island. You get one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer. Secondary source could be about his theology, a biography, anything you would like. What books are you taking with you? So... um... So the the book by Bonhoeffer that I would take would be Letters and Papers from Prison. Um, uh, it's I I just think it, it's the culmination of all those things, all the all the ideas that he's been writing about up, up to the time that he's in prison. I think you can find there. Plus, you find poetry and fiction mm-hmm. and um, deep relationships. I mean, in the, in these sort of personal relationships with people. Um, uh, I think that's important. Plus this essay, I've mentioned it several times, the essay After 10 Years, uh, which is written as a letter of moral support to his co-conspirators um, like at Christmas time of 1942. So after Hitler's been in power for 10 years, I think is um, there's so much important work in that, um, including this notion that the most important way to view the events of the world is from the perspective of those who suffer. Um, that's in that essay. So my, I, you know, I used to, before the new, before the DBWE uh, volumes were available, I had an older version of, you know, an earlier translation of letters and papers from prison and people who've read it, they'll recognize the blue cover with the yellow letters, um, for the, for the title. And my copy was literally falling apart. Uh, and I had it rubber banded together and there were big chunks of it that would fall out. And, um, I had a class. Um, a number of years ago, um, we were, I was doing a, teaching a seminar on Bonhoeffer, and two of my students, um, who are now married to each other, actually said one day they said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna borrow your book today." And I'm like, "What do you mean you're gonna borrow my book?" They're like, "Just trust us." And so they came back with it bound for me, so that I wouldn't lose any of the pages. So, so I typically now read um, I read the new translation with a copy of the old translation in my hand. So I probably would need both. I would mm. need the new version and the old version of what there's in prison. Um, in book two? In book two, um, I think I would, um, you know, I think I just have to lean into the Vecca biography. Um, it's, it's a popular it's, one. Yeah, it's so rich. There's so much there. Um I don't know if I should admit this or not. I still have not read it cover to cover. Um, I have read sections and I've, uh, I've used the index very judiciously. So I think if I was on a desert Island, it would give me the, afford me the opportunity to, um, to read it, 
you know, cover, cover to cover. So, hey, I don't blame you. I think it's like a thousand pages, right? It, it's, it's it a is big a thousand pages. Yeah. Um, so, so no judgment. And you have plenty of time on the island. So, you're good. You just have to be careful. We had a Bonhoeffer Society dinner one year where um, we, we've been meeting in church basements for the last 10 years or so and, mm-hmm. you know, have the meal catered and have a speaker. And the pastor of the church where we were meeting um, got up to greet us and her arm was in a sling. And she said, um, she said, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm excited. She said, in preparation for your visit, I decided to do a little brushing up on Bonhoeffer. And I was reading the Betka biography. And I just want to warn you, if you're reading the biography in bed, don't try to put it on your nightstand in the wrong way or you will dislocate your shoulder. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so. Wow. Well, yeah, it's it's a <laughs> that'll give you an idea, listeners, how big this thing is. But uh, but. The best one available from, uh, I probably, you know, I think you are episode 10. I think probably about six of the guests have picked Betka's biography as, as their book. So, um, popular choice. Um, well, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for taking the time to do this and for writing the book. Um, I, I, for anyone who is uh, new to Bonhoeffer studies, it's the first thing I recommend for them. That's like not here read discipleship or read an actual Bonhoeffer text. I, I use it as a great resource. A because um, you know Stephen Haynes does such a great job uh, on the biography, and it's only seventy pages. It's not like committing to multiple hundreds right. of pages, um, but you still get the gist of everything. And then you know you outline it greatly. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for joining me today. Um, yeah, if there's anything um, again, if I know that you're writing political theology, uh, Bonhoeffer's political theology. When that comes available, you're welcome to come back on anytime. Be glad to. Uh, I'm excited. I'll I'll just be honest. I'm excited about that book. Um, uh, We, if I, if I may, um, the the, the book. Yeah. Well, so the book is actually leaning into the, um, the work that the International Bonifer Society is doing in terms of um, thinking about our role in the academy and in, and in, and in the, public right so a couple of years ago we had um actually a strategic planning meeting for the international bonifer society english language section which is a pretty unusual um i think it's a pretty unusual move for an academic society to think about you know sort of long-term planning and we uh we rewrote our we rewrote our mission statement and, and a vision statement and committed to um Continuing sort of critical, historical critical scholarship, committed to ongoing constructive um, readings of Bonhoeffer. So thinking about how, you know, not trying to speculate about what Bonhoeffer would have um, said or done, um, but how can we use, how can we, how can we think alongside what Bonhoeffer offers and think about new um, issues that are facing us when, when there are things that he didn't write about or didn't, didn't encounter. Um, We've committed to engaged pedagogy. We've committed to um, applied sort of um, practical um, uses. So people who are activists and working in communities have this Bonhoeffer um, serve as a resource. And then we've committed to access. So we're in the process of trying to, um, uh, we're going to be redoing our website to make it much more user-friendly and have more resources available and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But so the book, um, the the book that's coming out it's an edited volume um part of a new series on political theology so the book is also kind of aligned with those some of those um 
mission and vision commitments of the society. So there's a section of the book devoted to historical critical work, thinking about how Bonhoeffer um, engages political theology and that discipline that's a field in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, then there's a section on constructive uses of, um, of Bonhoeffer's work. And so um, I'm doing a chapter in that section on Bonhoeffer and thinking about interfaith cooperation. There's a chapter um, uh, uh, that's on um, Jennifer, uh, Jenny McBride and Thomas uh, Fazbiaker doing a chapter on Bonhoeffer and mass incarceration. Di Rayson is doing a piece on um, environmental uh, eco-ethics in Bonhoeffer. Mm. Um, Karen Guth has done a really interesting chapter on um, uh, the, 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 the events in Charlottesville, the Unite the Right, and the Confederate monuments, and how Bonhoeffer gives us really interesting um, ways to think about that. Mm. And Lisa Dayhill's um, continuing some of her work on Bonhoeffer and gender issues. Um, and some of the concerns that she's raised historically about, um, you know, we've talked a lot in this podcast about vicarious representative action and about acting on behalf of others. And yet for some people in certain um, marginalized societies or in um, tenuous personal relationships, that can be a problem, right? So you don't want to be, um, you don't want victims, for example, mm -hmm. to be like they have to be selfless in a way that continues to um, allow them to be harmed. Um, so we've got that section, and then we have a final section, an applied section, where we have two pastors writing about how Bonhoeffer's influenced their pastoral work. And then we have Jeffrey Pugh, another Bonhoeffer scholar who's also clergy, who was on the front lines of the Unite the Right um, uh, rally in Charlottesville, talking about his experience as an activist um, through the lens. So we have the historical critical piece, we have the constructive piece, and then we have a section on applied work. So wow. I'm pretty excited about the book, but I'm also excited about the work that the society is doing to support people in all those different ways and how they think about Bonhoeffer scholarship. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, when it comes out, you're, you're welcome back on. And of course, I, you know, I, I think I told Dr. McBride this, if there's ever anything I can do for the um, International Bonhoeffer Society through this, promote AAR, anything like that that's going on, where I can get people information. Um, I'd be glad to do that. So uh, Thank yeah, you. this is great. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thank you Thanks. so much for taking the time, and uh, I hope you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast, and thank you to Dr. Hale for coming on. You can find her book, Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians, wherever books are sold. If you like what you hear, please leave a review in your podcast app, and that will help others find the show. We should be back towards the end of November slash beginning of December with another episode that I'm excited to share with you all. Until then, as always, thanks for listening.